this generation is a wicked generation. Amen. <laughs> what, what would you think if somebody started out a message with that statement? Well, I just did. <laughs> what if you heard somebody else say that? You know, that's not fair because you guys know me. What if you heard somebody else say that? And it was out on the streets where anybody and everybody is out there. Uh, it would surely get the attention of people, I am sure. Of course, in our times, and we already know that, it's nothing new to us, is it? We know it's scriptural, Jesus said it, but uh, I would think there would probably be a large amount of boos and jeers if somebody said that. Uh, anyway, it's definitely uh, not something that you would want to win friends and influence. Uh, people with, right? I wouldn't re- recommend it if you're trying to uh, establish friends- friendship with somebody. Of course, really, that's really what we want to get at is that people are are sinful and they're in a sinful generation. Always have been since the curse. Uh, this was the most popular speaker of, of, the, of his day um, amongst his people. And of course, we know he attracted thousands at a time and people kept coming. Every time they would hear that there was another miracle. And the way that He spoke was like no other. This is the sweet, loving Jesus that a lot of people like to picture Him as. And He is a sweet, loving Jesus. But He also balances it out with truth. Truth and love. And the people needed to see that they were unrighteous. That they were wicked. And they needed a Savior. They needed to turn from their sin and follow Christ. Now that's really the good news, isn't it? There is hope with that. So actually, we know that statement is true. It was at the time of Jesus, and it still is in our times. All people, all times, are wicked, evil, sinful in their hearts, so bad that they need to be saved. People have been that way for since the curse. And also, as you look at it today, it seems like it's manifested, though, in more ways than ever. Uh, it's magnified. It is observed more than at any other times. All you have to do is go on your phone, your Internet, and just go to Facebook real quick. Or just go out to what uh, comes up on Google News or whatever. And you'll see that the morality of our times has certainly changed even in our lifetime, even within the last five years. Things that people do and say and and are actually proud of it and they, they will shout it out. I think what time that we live in is really like a, a Sodom and Gomorrah world. You know, I look at that and you know, we think of that's like the epitome of wickedness and evil, right? As we see the immorality and the worldview that they had. Definitely a wicked generation. And how are we any better than they? As we practice the same things, the sin, the corruption, the filth, the perversion, it's immense, it's promoted and it's publicized and it's paraded before all. This wickedness is increasingly immoral, Blatant and flagrant. I don't have to say anything to remind us. We know that. And that's why we look forward to the kingdom to come. But Jesus had to address the sinners of that day as He addresses people today. And of course, He uses the church to bring in this bad news, good news thing. But the problem with Israel wasn't so much the outward immorality as it was in the inner realm as it was in the soul in the hearts these people were self-righteous they had self-satisfied religion as long as they were Jews they had it made well how did this proclamation get this far that Jesus made characterizes the people all through that time all through man's history really what was the context here what was Jesus why was he saying this seems like right out of nowhere but there's always context to where it's at. He had performed an obvious miracle. He cast a demon out of a man. The man who couldn't speak now is speaking. Everybody knows it. Nobody denies it whatsoever. They all know that it happened. 
It wasn't a trick. There were two reactions. One was the fact that, okay, it happened, but it was by the power of Satan, Beelzebub. And it's either Jesus is Satan, or he had his power to do that kind of miracle. So that's what they attributed it to. That's what we looked at last week as we went through, uh, I think, verse 17 through 26. Now he is addressing people that requested a sign. These people weren't exactly Pharisees and saying it came from Satan, but they're also thinking, well, it could be. Why don't you give us another sign? Sign from heaven. So he answered the first group, the Pharisees and, and the religious people, who said it's from Satan's power. He answered that. That's what we looked at last week. Now, this week, we're going to see him address the people that said, give us a sign from heaven. Now, he's going to do that, isn't he? Uh, not so. He doesn't go, he doesn't bow to their whims, right? These people had seen signs. They had seen people just discard their crutches. There were people that were blind, and then all of a sudden they could watch the sunset. They had seen the dead people raised, demons cast out of men, women, kids. And in this context, they're seeking a sign after all this. Jesus refuses to do what they demand. Instead, He's going to say it's the sign of Jonah that you'll get. So that's what we're dealing with today. And so let's pick up our uh, Scripture in Luke 11 as we stand in verse 29. As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar, nor under a basket, but on the lampstand. The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. As we look at it, we know it comes directly from You. This Word that we read, You've left it for us. May we be able to understand further how the Gospel is presented to people to change people's hearts. And yet there are people who will refuse it and go the other way and mock the Son of God. Lord, give us the wisdom to be able to understand further a little bit of Your nature. In Jesus' name, Amen. This wicked generation... It's a way to get people's attention, and Jesus certainly did. This particular story, as we said earlier, is what started actually with casting out demons. It's all in that context of where we've been. So you could see when you preach through and read through the Bible, you see how connecting parts are always there. And so it's not just a story out of nowhere. Oh, we get another little story kind of separate from it. 
It is the same thing that's happening. And he cast out the demon, said amazing things to the crowd. The word is getting out all around at that time that Jesus healed this man. So the crowds even pack in more. So it says in verse 29, as the crowds were increasing, they're already big, but here we go again, they're, they're increasing. And Jesus is going to answer the second group now, as I said earlier. He has very strong words. They need to take Him seriously. They're requesting a sign from heaven. How ridiculous it is what they've just done. So he says this statement now that we started off with just a while ago. This generation is a wicked generation. Wow. And I'll tell you that word for wicked is the worst possible word you could have for evil. Wicked, malicious, all those kind of words. The word is paneros. Christians really are not wicked. We had wicked and evil hearts before. It's deceitfully wicked as it says in Jeremiah. But when you're converted, you never have a Panaros heart anymore because you have a heart that the Holy Spirit lives in. Your heart, your thinking has been changed. We might do some things that are not consistent with who Christ and the Holy Spirit is who lives in us, but yet we are not Panaros. So this is a Panaros generation. They had all the evidence that they needed. What more did they need to see? But the fact is, they are self-righteous. They are moralist. That's what's interesting. The self-righteous and the moralist sometimes, and most of the time, are the harder ones to reach. God can break their hearts and open them up. But you've probably experienced it too when people are religious and go to church and yet they have no clue really what salvation really is and that they're saved by grace. So Jesus has a diagnosis for them that their hearts are evil. Now this is what is wicked here. Um, it says generation. This generation talking about my generation. I'm sorry about that. I had to go back to the 60s, I think. Who? <laughs> generation is, uh, I think it's easy to figure out what it is. It's the people of the day. They're His people. This generation that we're living amongst, it, it's really the Jews there. The ones who had the oracles, who had the Word of God, they had God standing there amongst them. This whole generation. It's the time they live in and it's who they are. And, and they're God-haters. They spurned Christ. They mocked Him. And we know later what they finally do with Him. They're self-righteous. They're, they're blaspheming God whenever they tell Him to do a, another miracle. They hate Him. So, uh, this generation is a wicked generation. Here's the reason. It seeks for a sign. Seeks for a sign. That's the answer. Now, at first thought, you go, well now how does wanting a sign from heaven come from a wicked generation? I'm sure they're saying that. Hey, we're good people, right? How does wanting a sign, like they did, we want to see one from heaven. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Well, to Christ, it's uh, blasphemous. What they're saying is, okay, these guys say that you are Satan, or you do it by the power of Satan when you do these miracles. Can you prove it that you're not of Satan then, if that be the case? They're kind of like uh, in the middle on this, kind of siding maybe with the religious, the Pharisees maybe a touch. Uh, can you do something that will change our minds about you? See, they don't see Him as God when they say that, do they? They want proof. Okay, proof. Let's see. He had banished disease from Israel. 
pretty well. It banished demonic possession pretty well. He fed thousands of people with out of nothing. He stilled the water, stilled the storms. He controlled the fish. Miracle after miracle, and then he even raised the dead. Now that story had gotten around all of Israel. And remember, we're getting down to the very last oh, few months, maybe the last three months or so, before Christ is going to be crucified. So we're talking three years now. Do you think everybody in Israel had heard of Christ? I think so. Gets around real quick. Or it's like, where have you been? Well, altogether, of all those things that he did, wasn't enough. They're a wicked generation because they're blasphemers and hypocrites. They reject everything that he says about what true spirituality is. They reject what he does. It's not from him. So, it's not because that Jesus has a lack of evidence. And really, wouldn't that be what they're saying? Well, show us a sign. We're not really convinced. Give us some more evidence. This is a lack of repentance. That's where their heart is at. It's, um, I think, uh, in Luke 16, which we'll be getting to eventually, Lord willing, unless He comes back, right? <laughs> that would be okay presence of the teacher. That would be great. Okay, Luke 16, verse 30 and 31. What you have here is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Um, let's pick it up, verse 19. Let's just read this parable. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores. This is not Lazarus, the one who had been, we know that Jesus raised. He was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away, and Lazarus in his bosom. That's the place of God's people. So this man who was in Hades cries out, says, Father Abraham, he's the father of the Jewish race, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here. You are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. It's impossible. And he said, Then I beg you, Father Abraham, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Now this is interesting. This is Abraham. Abraham preceded Moses and the prophets by hundreds of years. But it's all about the Word of God. They have the Word of God. Abraham and Moses and the prophets all lived together in this place. But he said, No father, Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Especially maybe him, right? <laughs> if somebody can rise from the dead, then they'll repent. 
But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And that's true today, isn't it? Most people in this world, what is it, six billion people? How many billions do you think who don't know Christ? How many reject Him and His resurrection? Most of those billions. I think I've heard that the number could be a billion Christians. But even then, a lot of those people come from churches. They profess Christ, but uh, they don't know Christ. They just joined the church, but there's never been a heart change. So who knows? I would say it's probably less than a billion. I don't know. I really don't know that's God's number that He has. But it does say in Scripture, few there be that find it. And the thing is, it's all around them. It's there. They have the Word of God. They've heard it. But they don't listen to it. And even if someone is raised from the dead, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Later on, Jesus says this parable here. Now let's go to John 15, verse 24 and 25. Jesus is speaking. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. That's interesting. Jesus is saying here that if I hadn't done these works, then they don't have this sin. Now everybody is sin. You're born in sin. But what is He talking about? The sin of rejecting Him. It is full rejection at full revelation. That is the all-time worst sin, right? To reject Christ. If I had not done them, it had been better off for them. Now they're more responsible. Their sin is so great because I have done things that no one else has ever done. That makes it a great sin. Now, if the Romans, okay, they, we know that they did not uh, trust Christ at that time. They worshipped Caesar. They rejected the true God. But they're not held as much responsible as the Jewish people are. So, as we look at that, we'd say that the Jews really are God-haters if they don't trust in Christ. I would say anyone that rejects the Lord Jesus Christ is a God-hater. Either you love God or you hate Him. And so that's the proclamation. It's pretty, uh, pretty bold, pretty clear. Matter of fact, it's very clear as Jesus makes no bones about it, makes no mistakes about it, that... This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for sign. And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. So let's go to the sign now. We've seen the proclamation. Sign. It's interesting now. Um, And there's a three-letter word that comes up here that is so beautiful. And so often it is. If you're talking bad news and all of a sudden you get this little word... Yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. Now, what's going on here? This is good news. This is the word but there opens up the windows of grace. We've seen that he's he's made a condemnation. Here's the bad news. You're wicked. You're evil. It's a sign that is pointing to His deity, pointing to His Messiahship, pointing to Him being Savior. We'll get into this. What is the sign of Jonah? Well, we're going to get a little help from Matthew. It's a parallel passage. It was probably at a different time, a little bit earlier. 
it's probably in Galilee, as he's in Luke here, maybe possibly amongst the people of Judea. That's not too odd. A lot of times he'd be preaching basically the same sermon from one place to another. Different sermons that he had, but saying the same kind of thing. So, in verse 38, Matthew 12, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Or he is really making it clear to us. Are they getting this? What's the sign of Jonah? We see it in verse 40 there, don't we? Three days, three nights. Just as Jonah came out of that virtual death and came out of it alive, so would Jesus come out of actual death and would be alive. Now that's the sign of Jonah. Jesus is saying this, and hes it's almost like a parable to the ones that do not understand Him. Of course, most people don't understand that He's going to die and then resurrect. And that's the very heart of the Gospel, isn't it? Death, burial, resurrection. So let's look at uh, Matthew 16, verse 4. back up a little bit. Uh, we see in verse 1, Pharisees, Sadducees came up to test Jesus. They asked Him to show them a sign from heaven. Evidently, this might have happened at different times. But He replied to them, when it's evening, you say, it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. We have that today, don't we? Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? You can look up in the in the heavens, I mean in the sky, and you can tell kind of what's going to happen. Red sky at night. At night. Sailors delight. Red sky in the morning. Sailors take warning. Still here. I mean it, you know, pretty well comes true, doesn't it? And he says, you can understand that. Everybody knows it. But you can't discern the signs of the times. You can't understand that this is an evil and adulterous generation, can you? You just can't see that, can you? That's what he says. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it, except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. What a way to depart. That made him think, didn't it? Well, you would like to think so. But I'm sure it made a lot of them mad or just ignored it. So he uses the sign of Jonah. Now, you guys remember the story of Jonah. By the way, when Jesus uses this, and he said it in other places, hasn't he? The sign of Jonah. He's authenticating the character, the real person, Jonah. What what's the big deal about that? Well, it means that Jesus took it literal, that there was a literal Jonah and that whole story. That he was swallowed up by a fish. Three days later, he was burnt, belched out of the fish. That's a real story. And people like the liberals, you know what they do with that. The Bible is not real. Because it has such ridiculous little children's stories about being swallowed up by a whale. Of course, the Scripture never ever said whale. It's a big fish. Whatever that was. One prepared by God? Well, what's the deal here? 
Well, we can take it literal whenever we go through the Old Testament and see some things that don't seem to make sense and they're real. Just like when we go through the New Testament and see the miracles of Christ and we can take those literal also, can't we? The uh, In Jonah chapter 3, tell that story, I guess we'll go in there a little bit. be a great study in itself, wouldn't it? The book of Jonah. He's a prophet, although he's kind of different than other prophets. Winds up doing prophecy. In Jonah 3, after Jonah had been in the fish, you know, the storm, and then he's you know, thrown out into the ocean and swallowed up by the fish. And then he has a one of the greatest prayer meetings that one would ever have. <laughs> he prayed to God and he vowed that, uh, he was saying that salvation is from the Lord. The Lord commanded the fish and vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Now, chapter 3. Okay, we've covered two chapters. Now the word of the Lord. We know that he was in rebellion and he wanted to go the other way. You know, you know why, don't you? The reason is, is that he believes in God and he knows if he goes to the enemy, which is the Ninevites, especially at that day, they were the enemy. Just like if we had enemies and there would be one particular enemy, would you want to go to that enemy and tell them what's wrong with them? Well, Jonah wouldn't mind telling them what's wrong with them and that they are going to hell if they don't repent. The problem that he had is that he knew the character of God, that God offers grace, and that God can forgive even the most wicked of people. And the Ninevites were wicked people. Evil they were. He's told to go there and he knows that God could save them. And he knows the message that he gives them is a warning. He doesn't mind the message. But they can repent. And I don't want them to repent. We know that they wind up repenting. The city does. He gets mad. That's right. Amazing. Started pouting about it. But God used him anyway. It's just like, you know, I have troubles, I have to admit, with uh, Muslim beliefs and some of the things that are getting in this nation, you know, uh, Sharia law and that kind of thing. It's like we have the best ministry of, we don't have, even have to go there. They, they're coming here, they're filling up our country. And they're bringing their kind of lifestyle and their God in, which is no God at all. It's an idolatry. It's a fake God. But there is you know, something inside of me that disdains that. And I hope it's because of what they believe in rather than the people themselves. Sometimes I get confused with that. That's where I need to get that confusion cleared away and realize that these people need the Lord like anybody else. Or otherwise, I'm like Jonah. And it's awful easy to be Jonah, folks. I, you know, I cannot condone the things that they have done all over the world and killing Christians, doing the things that they do here. And of course, not all Muslims that do that. I know that. Uh, it, it is probably a, a small niche, but the thing is, their belief does support some of the all the evil things that they've done. You go into their their scriptures. Okay, the Lord says, "Okay, now Jonah, you're out. You're on the dry land now. Arise and go to Nineveh, which is where I told you to go in the first place." Uh, he finally got Jonah to pray and uh, you know confess, and I says, and he says, okay, now we're going to go there. We've had a little delay here, but you're going to do what I want you to do. Have you ever been at that point? 
God tells you to do something and you delay and you don't do it, right? And then, okay, here's where we're at. I want you to make proclamation, which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Uh, He just got out of the fish. By the way, uh, it's kind of interesting, but it's worth a thought. If you were in a fish, uh, you're talking about acids, you know, in the stomach. God could protect that, but whenever He came out, there could have been, uh, it's almost like He had a white face, so a white body, where things kind of changed in His body and His face, made Him look a little different. It might still have that. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. It's a three days walk. Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, cried out and said, Yet 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. I think he kind of gets into that. 40 days, they're going to be overthrown. You are. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. They called a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. We're on a fast. It's not one of those things where you can eat fish on Friday. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way. This is the king, his wicked way, and from the violence which is in his hands. They were very violent. Violent to their own children. Put them in jars and put them in the walls of the city. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw His burning anger so that we will not perish. But God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way. It was a wicked generation. Then God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared. He would bring upon them. And so He didn't do it. He didn't bring on judgment. He didn't destroy the Ninevites. They last around another 150 years, I understand. What a story. You know what? Nineveh is going to be overthrown. That's not all he said. I think he preached. I think he said maybe some other things. I believe he must have said his testimony of what just happened it was still quite a few days away from where he was at when he was in the water and then landed on the beach. I have to wonder. I don't know. I really don't know and I'm not even pressing it. it makes you wonder if somebody saw him come out of that fish and be, you know, blow him up in the air and boom, he's out in the water or, or boom, he lands on the beach, right? Dry land. Maybe somebody saw it. I don't know. Uh, it doesn't say that. It doesn't have to say it at all. I think it would be interesting though, This whoever, who, it might have been a group of people and they follow him all the way back to Nineveh. Maybe they get the word around. Maybe not. It doesn't say it. But I think Jonah, just by walking into the city, looking like he could have looked all pale with what the acids had done to him, God could have made him whole and healed there. It's very possible. But it's very possible that he looked like he came out of a fish. (laughs) Whatever that looks like. So I'm putting a lot of ifs in there and I'm not trying to add to God's Word when I do that. Sometimes I get an imagination and start thinking, well, how did, how did they believe Him? You know, I mean, why didn't they just blow Him away as soon as He walked into the city? And you know, and He started saying, God is going to overthrow this city. No, you know what they, how they responded? They repented. They repented. I believe that he must have at least told about what happened to him. Maybe not, but I think so. Because it was like he was dead 
for three days and three nights and then was alive. I mean, who's going to live in a fish for three days and three nights with it, it just eating you up with all the acids? He came back from virtual death. They saw this as a sign. There's also a sign of repentance there, right? That, that The repentance story is there. But this is the sign of Jonah. It's the resurrection that it's pointing to of the Son of Man. Now, do they get all of that really clear? Old Testament, sometimes, you know, there are a lot of things there that help us as we look into it. But to them, they don't see the end result. But one thing that happens is they repent and they believe in the one true God. Now that's amazing. What greater sign could there be that there was a conquering of death here? The greatest sign, you know, uh, Jesus' resurrection, that's where everything is all about. If He died and then was buried and that's it, then what are we doing here this morning, right? There's no reason to be here, but it's all about the resurrection. That's why when you see in the book of Acts, what does it always go to? Resurrection. Resurrection. Death, burial, resurrection. Part of the Gospel. For your sin. People recognize their sin. The king recognized their sin. He knew they were wicked and evil. But whenever it's brought to their attention that God is going to judge it, and each one individually, they're all responsible for their sin. This is a sign to the generation. Why did they believe the message of Jonah? Well, it's a sign... Jonah, a sign of judgment to come. There's a sign of repentance here. There's the sign of the resurrection. Jonah should have been dead. He's alive. He must be from God because look what happened to him. And if, even if they didn't know that, but I think that I think they did. I really do. But even if they didn't, that he even lived to get out of that city is amazing with what he said. What if you went into a Muslim city, started preaching the gospel out in the streets? Do you think you have a chance? They're going to throw you in jail. They'll put you to death very quickly must be from God. They called a fast, put on sackcloth. Jonah preached repentance because the king rose from the throne, laid aside his robe, sackcloth and ashes, issued a proclamation. They were all to repent. Everybody was to fast. Let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God, the one true God, may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. You know what? He got it. They got it. Most people don't want to hear about sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit does that to people convicts people of sin, that God is righteous and holy, and there is judgment. Sin, righteousness, judgment. I believe the Holy Spirit was working in this city. What do you think? Amen. Was it Jonah? But he was taking his word that was God's word and blessing it. They believed this was a message from the true God. God did a miracle. And they believed only He could do this. The messenger came from God. This was the sign of Jonah, which points to the resurrection of Christ in turn. Now we come to the condemnation. This is truly amazing. This is going to be the climax of his story. And he'll probably just move on. Actually, he has more words to say, but it would probably be a great time to just make your exit. 
So he says in 30, For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be in this generation. Okay, we've got that now, right? They were a wicked and adulterous generation. So was the generation that Jesus is speaking to. So are we today. Verse 31, The Queen of the South will rise up with the men of this generation. The people he's speaking to now. He says there's going to come a time when the Queen of the South will be rising up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Oh, this is this is juicy. Because he, you know, he's going to come back to the Ninevites. But it's like he adds to this before he comes back and hits the coup de grace, smacks him in the face. This queen of the south is a lady that comes from Sheba. She's a queen from Sheba, or what we know today as Yemen. Y-E-M-E-N. We became probably accustomed to that country whenever the Gulf War was going on. And that nation is still existing. It's way south, way down to the bottom uh, of the Saudi Arabia area, all the way to the very southwest corner of the Arabian Peninsula. Folks, this is a long way from Israel. And that's the idea. To the ends of the earth, it says. It's a long way. Verse 31, she came from the ends of the earth. She would have been very wealthy. They were a nation that had uh, just a powerful trade with people. They developed agriculture. They had camel caravans that had precious stones and gold and diamonds and all sorts of things. And this was a nation that was afar off. Now, this is a woman. This is a Gentile. She is a pagan. Strike three. This is a queen who comes from Sheba or Yemen, from the south to visit Solomon. Solomon is a man of God. God blessed Solomon with so many things. Wisdom was the greatest. The only thing is, we see some things about Solomon that really disappoint us. But he was a man of wisdom. God, in His grace, used this man It wasn't that she just heard about Solomon. She heard that Solomon had this wisdom, that he came from his God. She heard about God and his wisdom. She wanted to know who this God is and where all these blessings came from. In 1 Kings chapter 10. 1 Kings 10. Verse 9. She kept questioning Solomon, you know, about this and that. Difficult questions. He kept answering. She saw his wisdom. She saw all that, that he had. Of course, she had a lot of stuff too. Verse 8. How blessed are your men. How blessed are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. Now here's where she gets in to praise of God. Blessed be the Lord. What Lord is that? Well, the Tetragrammaton, four letters, Hebrew, personal name of God, Yahweh. She is talking about the one true God, the only one. Lord your God, who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore, He made you king 
to do justice. Ah, gotta like that word. And righteousness. She gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great amount of spices and precious stones. Never again did such abundance of spices come in as that which the queen of Sheba gave King Solomon. Boy, she came in with a lot of people bringing the caravans of stuff to give him. And the ships of Hiram which brought gold from Ophir brought in from Ophir a very great number of almond trees and precious stones. Anyway, King Solomon gave some things to her as it says in verse 13 that she left and went back home with all the servants. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore, He made you king to do justice and righteousness. She's got it down. See, there are people in the world today that don't want justice and they don't want righteousness. People are rebelling against our king here in America because they don't want righteousness. They don't want what true justice is. We're talking about representing righteousness. Our country, even as some of the wicked things it's done, it's represented righteousness. We know there's a group of people who are evil and wicked who want to overturn everything that's righteous and turn it over into wickedness. That's what the agenda is, has been for several several decades. And now it's showing it's ugly Head. But a righteous and a just God, Solomon explained not only the wisdom that was given, I think he explained theology to her. She understood this God, called him by name, a righteous God, a just God. Solomon was wise. The Jews had in their midst at this time, as we go back to our Luke story, they have someone greater than Solomon, the great king, that she was amazed at. But she knows where he got his wisdom. It came from God. She got it. Do leaders today know where they get stuff from? If they have any wisdom at all? It's a great teacher of wisdom, but there's one greater. The Jews had a far greater message delivered to them than Solomon ever delivered, and they rejected it all. This is what Jesus is saying now. You're wicked and evil. You know what? You reject me as I am greater than Solomon. Now, this is what the Queen of the South will do at the judgment. At the judgment when people rise up to be judged And God somehow, in some way, is going to use the Queen of Sheba from afar off as a Gentile, as a pagan, and strike three is a woman. And she's going to take that generation, and I'd say at least the generation that the people who Jesus was even speaking to, and the Jews at that time, and they're going to be raised up, they're going to be there, and she is going to put the, the words of God as far as judgment. It's God is judging, but He's going to use her. This woman who died, passed away, is going to rise up one day too and put condemnation on them. Isn't that incredible? She wasn't a Jew. She didn't know. She didn't have the Word of God. She didn't know all the things that the Jews did. She didn't have all those privileges. And yet she's going to be the one to condemn them. This is amazing. Have you ever thought about this passage? She's going to condemn the ungodly as pagan as she was. This is the severest judgment they will get because they will be put into the lake of fire. Great white throne judgment. So now he says the men of Nineveh now will do this. The people, the men of Nineveh, just like the queen of Sheba, the men of Nineveh, Nineveh, is from where? Not Israel. It was their enemy. And they've been the enemy since then. But 
those people who were believers, just like the Queen of Sheba, who were not Israelites, they're going to come in and do what? Judge that generation that Jesus was speaking to. Verse 32, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here, right here, standing in front of you. The message that he gave was powerful enough to change a city. How many? Was it all of them? Could have been. I don't know. I know he commanded, the king did, for everybody to do that, repent. How many it was, I don't know. But we do know that there were, was it 200,000 children? Some say it was anywhere from a half million to a million people that lived there. Could he convert a whole city? Yes, he could. Did he? I don't know. I think there were a lot of them saved. We're talking... We're talking hundreds of thousands of people. This is a revival, folks. One of the greatest revivals ever. And it was to these pagan people way out there. He brings up people, kings and queens and leaders of nations all throughout the ages. Not only will the people of Israel, but it will be other people that who did not trust in Christ. But we know the Queen of the South, the men of Nineveh will all rise again. We'll see them face to face, you know that? We'll meet them. Meet the Queen of Nineveh. Or, uh, um, the, the, the men of Nineveh, and the women of Nineveh, children of Nineveh. <laughs> and we'll meet uh, the Queen of Sheba. Uh, they were believers. The judgment, the Gentile Ninevites stand as symbols of condemnation over a greater privileged Israel who had God in their midst. And they repented at the preaching of Jonah. They might have just heard the message once. That's all they needed. What about that sign? We need a sign from heaven. And he says, people in Nineveh, the only sign they got was Jonah. They didn't even see it. They heard about it. They heard about they needed to repent, and they repented. These people were worse off than uncircumcised Ninevites and a pagan Gentile woman from the end of the earth who had very little spiritual privilege but made the most of that little privilege. This just infuriated the Jewish crowd that Jesus speaking to. Oh, you're talking about anger now when he says this. Can you imagine it? It was a merciful reminder of judgment in the final sign. It was enough to convince any open heart. And their hearts are not open. He has, he has done it all. He, he did it. He said it. He pronounces the judgment on them. And you evil, wicked generation, I'm going to take what was an evil, wicked generation who was converted in the heart and they're going to judge you and send you into the lake of fire. Wow. Now we end with this and and normally I could say we, we could stop right there. But Jesus doesn't stop there and He doesn't say, that's it, I'm out of here. He still gives an invitation. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar, nor under a basket, but on the lampstand, so that those who enter may see the light. Now, you see that in another uh, area, and it sounds like, oh, well, that's we are to be the lights of the world, and uh, we're not to cover up the, the gospel. What it is, this is talking about Jesus Christ. He is the light. And when you look at Him, you've got to realize that I can't take Him, like the, the, the Greeks had cellars, at their homes. They had bigger homes. And he said, nobody's going to go downstairs and hide that light. Or if you were a Jew, you had a smaller home and you would put the light upon the lampstand. In verse 33, Jesus says that the purpose of a lamp is to illuminate. Thus a light is put in a very prominent place. People see that. 
And He has come as the light of the world. He is the light in verse 33. From 34 to the rest of the section, it's dealing with um, people with eyes that have light. He's the light of the world. He illumines people, doesn't He? Jesus came to convert people. He came to convert people. His evidence was plentiful. It was not lacking whatsoever. Remember last week we talked about the verdicts that were made by the people? They came to the wrong verdict. It's from Satan that that happened. Or we want another sign. Problem was not with the evidence Jesus had already given for three years and what He had just done before their eyes. But the problem was their eyes the spiritual eyes that beheld what He had just done. That's the problem. The eye, the heart, compared to that. Let's let's move on down. We'll just explain this as we go right at the end. The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body is also full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. It's talking about people who can see, who have eyes, and then blind people then watch out that that light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. Kind of moving from a symbolism here, you know, the light and, uh, and, and the darkness. And everyone who failed to interpret the evidence as a miracle that came from God as they should have done, they have a defect in their ability to see. They're blind. They can't see what this is all about. God was in their midst. They can't see. They don't want to see. If if people don't believe, it isn't the fault of the eyes. I mean, you know, it, it, uh, what you had here, it's not the gospel that has failed, is it? Which is the light. It was plenty. It was all they ever needed. How much do you need? The result of light and vision is that you can see. Jesus is saying, do you have the sight to see that sign? The sign of Jonah, right? Do you have the sight to see the sign of the Son of Man, do you have that? Can you see Christ here? Do you understand that He's the only way of salvation? Do you understand your sin and your need of a Savior? Do you have that sight? You know, I think He's challenging His generation, and He's challenging our generation. He's challenging us with that message, isn't He? Do you see? Are you enlightened? He says, if you are blind, there's nothing but darkness in you. Apart from me, you're nothing. You're dead. You're dead in your sins. You're dead in your trespasses. Your eyes are blind. You have no hope in yourselves. Jesus is calling His generation and our generation, and you and me, He's calling us to the sense that We have an enormous privilege and He's calling us to follow Him completely. You know, we have our Bibles and then we have more and more Bibles and other Bibles. You know, they're just everywhere in different formats. It's amazing. Sometimes those Bibles just collect dust. We have faithful Bible preaching all throughout the week if we like to listen on the radio and such and on the internet. We... Talk about the Word here. That's what it's all about. We sing it. We pray it. We commune together. But the question is, is do we repent? Do we see Jesus? Do we see His beauty? Do we see His beauty and His wisdom? Do we see His Gospel? So every single one of us has business to do with the Lord every day, don't we? And He wants us to see with the eyes that He's given us to see Him clearer. May God let us not play games, but to be honest and true with Him 
and that we would be changed daily on a constant basis. May He grant to us repentance. Father, we thank You for Your grace. If it were not for that, we know that our self-righteousness is nothing. Our self-centeredness is nothing. Matter of fact, it's the biggest stench to You when we're relying on anything but You. Help us, Lord, to see this sign of Jonah, this resurrection, the resurrection of Christ, the justification that we get as a result of His work on the cross and in coming back to life. What a sign that is to people. That's the biggest sign. That's the sign that all people need. It's the only sign. It's the heart of who Christ is and what He's done. Save us from our wickedness and our sin. Lord, we praise You here today for You have given us the wisdom. You've given us grace to be saved. Thank You for that mercy. May we take You even more and more serious each day that we would reflect the very light that You have given us in our hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen.